Good morning. Um, I appreciate the, uh, the story that treated water as sacred. Um, I wish we could keep that concept oftener. Um, I may have to deviate a bit from what I wrote to speak a little more about water. I uh, created something a little more expansive uh, to be about justice, which is our theme for the month, and other life. So what is justice? When we talk about it, we usually talk about it in terms of human life. Justice for the less fortunate, shelter for the homeless, feeding the hungry, taking care of the sick. We fight for cures for cancer, for better medicines, for better, more affordable distribution, of medicines and health care. Can there be a sense of justice for other creatures beyond humans? In the Western or European world, we tend to look at other life as helpful to us. Food product, beast of burden, companion animal. And we value them accordingly. Perhaps we see some animals as things of beauty or fascination, birds or dolphins, maybe even squirrels or gophers. But we generally view squirrels and gophers, ants, cockroaches, sorry, Archie, <laughs> scorpions and snakes as either annoyances or even danger, and we want to kill them for the most part. The animals that get into your well-loved flower or vegetable garden which seems like a most inviting buffet to them. We put out poisons or have the pest control company come and spray. We're afraid of those creatures. We don't want them in our house or our yard. Most of the religions of Native Americans that we are familiar with have, have a very different sense of their surrounding world. They seem to see themselves as part of the circle of life, humans being just one of the creatures in the living world. Most native religions seem to view animals as totems, cohorts, friends, fellow travelers. I think our European view, perhaps it's a Christian heritage view, tends to see humans as an apex of creation rather than part of a circle or at the top of a pyramid, rather than part of a web of life. Friday was Endangered Species Day. Today is the International Day for Biological Diversity. I mention these because all life, at least as far as we know it, requires water. Back in March, we had World Water Day. But World Water Day was framed in terms of people. Most presentations, sorry, most presentations and concerns about the Earth's future are framed from a human point of view. How many people lack access to clean water, etc. But I think we need to expand that concern for water to cover all of life. I found some readings that um, expressed for me, so I didn't have to create my own words, um, my feelings. The following is from a commentary by 
I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Klaus Duway Dijkstra, in the journal Nature. The core value of natural history and taxonomy is species sense. This is a consciousness of the existence and impact of all species, from plankton to cattle, and including humankind. Species make each place special and thus worth fighting for. Life is like water, a branching river system, literally a genealogy, with a unique history in every separate stream, one human action can erase an irreplaceable ecosystem. Although a hydroelectric dam might seem a sapient energy solution, it can mean ecocide to a mind with species sense. Whereas every human relies on this species sense, even if only by reaping the benefits of agriculture and medicine, few in society see it as their primary responsibility. Last week, Reverend Linda spoke with optimism about making necessary changes for our future Earth. I'm a much less optimistic person, as I think many of you know, but I'll try not to be too gloom and doom. After all, I must think there's some hope for the future, or I wouldn't be fighting so hard for it, would I? Here's another commentary that has very cogent points for me. It's titled, The Great Grief, How to Cope with Losing Our World. Subtitled, In Order to Respond Adequately, First We May Need to Mourn. The author is Per Espen Stoknes. Climate scientists overwhelmingly say that we will face unprecedented warming in the coming decades. Those same scientists, just like you or I, struggle with the emotions that are evoked by these facts and dire projections. This man's children, who are now 12 and 16, may live in a world warmer than at any time in the previous three million years and may face challenges that we are only just beginning to contemplate and in many ways may be deprived of the rich, diverse world that we grew up in. How do we relate to and live with this sad knowledge? Across different populations, psychological researchers have documented a long list of mental health consequences of climate change. Trauma, shock, stress, anxiety, depression, complicated grief, strains on social relationships, substance abuse, sense of hopelessness, fatalism, resignation, loss of, auton of autonomy and sense of control, as well as a loss of personal and occupational identity. This more than personal sadness is what I call the great grief, a feeling that rises in us as if from the earth itself. Perhaps bears and dolphins, clear-cut forests, fouled rivers, and the acidifying plastic-laden oceans bear grief inside them too, just as we do. Every piece of climate news increasingly comes with a sense of dread, is it too late 
to turn around. The notion that our individual grief and emotional loss can actually be a reaction to the decline of our air, water, and ecology rarely appears in conversation or the media. It may crop up as fears about what kind of world our sons or daughters will face. But where do we bring it? Some bring it privately to a therapist. It's as if the topic is not supposed to be publicly discussed. This great grief recently resurfaced for me, the author, upon reading news about the corals on the brink of death due to warming oceans, as well as overfishing Patagonian toothfish in plastic-laden oceans. Is this a surging wave of grief arriving from the deep seas, from the ruthlessness and sadness of the ongoing destruction? Or is it just a personal whim? As a psychologist, I've learned not to scoff at such reactions or movements in the soul, but to honor them. A recent climate survey by the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication and the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication had this startling statistic. Most Americans, 74%, say they only rarely or never discuss global warming with family and friends, a number that has grown substantially since 2008, when it was only 60% who said that. These quotes and statistics underscore the reality that many prefer to avoid or not dwell in this Mordor-esque land of eco-anxiety, anger, despair, and depression. One of denial's essential life-enhancing functions is to keep us more comfortable by blotting out this inner wintry darkness. The climate survey, however, also has this encouraging finding. Americans are nine times more likely to lean toward the view that it is people's responsibility to care for the earth and its resources, 62%, than toward the belief that it is our right to use the earth and its resources for our own benefit, only 7%. So what if, instead of continuing to avoid this hurt and grief and despair, or only blaming them, the corporations, the politicians, agribusiness, loggers, corrupt bureaucrats, for it, we could try to lean into and accept such feelings. We could acknowledge them for what they are, rather than dismissing them as wrong as a personal weakness or somebody else's fault. It seems somehow important to persist and get in touch with the despair itself as it arises from the degradation of the natural world. As a culture, we may uncover some truths hinted at by feelings we tend to discredit as depressive. These truths include that they accurately reflect the state of ecology in our world. More than half of all animals gone in the last 40 years, according to the Living Planet Index. Most ecosystems are being degraded or used unsustainably, 
according to Millennium Assessment Report. We're living inside a mass extinction event, say many biologists, but without hardly consciously noticing. In order to respond adequately, we may need to mourn these losses. Insufficient mourning keeps us numb or stuck in anger at them, which only feeds the cultural polarization. But for this to happen, the presence of supportive voices and models are needed. It is far harder to get acceptance of our difficulty and despair and to mourn without someone else's explicit affirmation and empathy. Contact with the pain of the world, however, does not only bring grief, but can also open the heart to reach out to all things still living. It holds the potential to break open the psychic numbing. Maybe there is also community to be found among like-hearted people, among those who also can admit they've been touched by this great grief feeling the earth's sorrow, each in their own way. Not just individual mourning is needed, but a shared process that leads onwards to public re-engagement in cultural solutions. Working out our own answers as honestly as we can, as individuals and as communities, is rapidly becoming a requirement for psychological health. To cope with losing our world requires us to descend through the anger into mourning and sadness, not speedily bypass them to jump onto the optimism bandwagon or escape into indifference. And with this deepening, an extended caring and gratitude may open us to what is still here and finally to acting accordingly. It's the end of his passage from The Great Grief. I have a few more things to bring up from one of the newest books about water in the Southwest. It's called Mythical River. The Huachuca Water Umble, which some of you may have heard about, serves no purpose and stands for nothing. It doesn't even look pretty on a postcard. The umble is just a warning flag, the wild green edge of surrender. When it disappears, you know a lot of other things will follow. The lowland leopard frog, Mexican garter snake, Gila top minnow, Canelo Hills ladies' tresses, Sonora tiger salamander, all things common and rare, that need a wetland to survive. We could get by without the Huachuca water umble, John Titus said, surprising me with his quick acknowledgement that the plant to which he devoted a good part of his career serves no function. It's not essential, not like a beaver, a keystone species. Most species aren't like that. Species have always come and gone, and new species evolve. That's why these materialistic arguments don't work, trying to put a price on the value of something. Really, it's a philosophical approach, 
I believe all life has intrinsic worth, Priscilla added, Priscilla Titus, her infectious enthusiasm gaining momentum. That's not something you can prove or disprove. That's something I believe. And um, she interviewed me as well. Um, I asked Jaredette her reasons for getting involved in the fight on the San Pedro River. As I learned and read more and more about the San Pedro, I've come to understand how remarkable it is, I said. I've read about what makes the river be a river, even when there's no rain for months, and how important it is to wildlife, and historically, how important it's been to humans. I'm very concerned. I hope it doesn't die anymore in my lifetime. I don't know. I do know that if we don't fight, it will die. And that's my optimism and why I engage. <laughs>